0: so acts chapter 4 verses 8 to 12 and as i read remember we're reading god's word then peter filled with the holy spirit said to them rulers of the people and elders if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man by what means this man has been healed May this word of the Lord unite us as a church and make us bold as Jesus' missionaries. You may be seated. You know, it seems more and more these days like uh, Christians are starting to really wake up to the uh, reality that when it comes to the culture, uh, we're the visiting team. And more and more people seem to be having this awareness, um, and I think we're definitely experiencing it in more pronounced ways, but in other ways it's, it's not all that new, um, I, I want to, I've got a trivia question for you uh, related to this. In 1776, uh, what percentage of people in the colonies, you know, who would eventually become the United States of America, what percentage of uh, colonists in 1776 regularly attended church? You got the founding of the country, the Declaration of Independence, the Revolutionary <laughs> War. What percentage of of, of people in the colonies regularly attended church. Any any guesses? Uh, Not very confident in here. What do you think? 70%? 85? 40? 100? All right, here's the answer. According to Roger Fink and Rodney Stark, Stark's a very well-respected historian in their book, The Churching of America, where they kind of cover the history of this. In 1776... 17% of the colonists regularly attended church. My guess is for most of us, we go, wow, that's lower than I thought, right? Why? Why do we think that? Because we think, this used to be a Christian nation. Now, you can have a lot of very, I think, intelligent and thoughtful conversations about how Christian uh, the, the, you know, united the to be united states was at its founding and in the early days i i think some of what that shows you is that is that we've probably as a a nation always been an interesting kind of sync you know syncretist mix of um christianity and deism and enlightenment thought and lots of other things that became a kind of interesting hodgepodge but but we have this idea that at some point we were this real christian nation and now we're we're not anymore we have a real sense of loss about this. And, and, and that percentage went up, right, because you had the, the Second Great Awakening and you had these other things in history. Uh, by World War I, about 50% of people regularly attended church. So that did go up. But, but we've always been the visiting team. Always. And, and, and it doesn't feel like it as much because, because maybe a few decades ago, maybe more than a few decades ago, there was at least a sense that that Christianity had something to say about society, something to say about culture, something to offer, right? People like Billy Graham were on the covers of magazines and Reinhold Niebuhr and these other, you know, theologians would be on the cover of Time or Newsweek, if any of you remember what those are, right? And and so there was at least a cultural voice that Christianity had something to say, and that now is like, hey, we we don't even want to hear from you. Would you guys just please stay off to the side, you bigots? So there is a sense of, of loss, and a sense of grief, and a sense of what's our place? How do we sort through this? And it seems that as I, as I, as I look at how we could respond, there are kind of three potential responses. The first one comes from Tom Schrader. He preaches here sometimes, a mentor of mine. He was the founding pastor at Redemption Gilbert, now kind of uh, semi retired. And he says that uh, this first option is what he sees most of the people his age and above do. Option one is gripe and buy gold. All right? the the world's going to hell in a handbasket. I'm going to gripe about it. I'm going to complain about it. I'm going to talk about how great it used to be. And I'm going to buy gold because you never know, right? Like this thing could all be falling apart. Armageddon might happen. Gripe and buy gold. That's one option. The second option is wither and fold. Wither and fold, right? Rather than just complain about it, go, you know what? Hey, we're probably on the wrong side of history here. And, uh, you know, Christianity is just going to be a challenging thing to really hold on to and and maybe, maybe we are wrong about our faith and we should just kind of capitulate to the rest of the culture. So we could gripe them by gold or we could wither and fold or finally, and this is what this sermon I think wants to call us to, is we could learn to be bold. We could gripe them by gold, we could wither and fold or we could learn to be bold. You go, that rhymes, yes. You go, that's cheesy and corny. Yes, it is. But my hope is you'll remember it. You'll say, listen, we don't want to be people who just gripe and buy gold. We don't want to be people who wither and fold. We want to learn to be bold. And here's the thing. We don't have to look very far. We just have to open our Bibles. We have to look at the record of saints throughout history who have always been the visiting team. And who, through the power of the Holy Spirit, have learned to be bold. To be humble and bold. At the same time. And that's what we're going to see here in this particular story. Now, in Acts 4, it's interesting because it it sort of marks the first significant opposition that we see in the book of Acts, right? Up to this point, there's been just a, a little hint at it in chapter 2 after the Holy Spirit came and people were speaking the mighty works of God in many different languages and they were accused of being drunk. Uh, but but really, other than that, if you had never read the book of Acts before and didn't know anything about the Christian history before, if you just read <laughs> chapters 1 through 3, you might be thinking, oh my gosh, Christianity is just going to take over the world. Everybody loves this. This is the most popular thing I've ever seen, right? Because the Holy Spirit falls in chapter 2. And uh, Peter gets up when people are like, hey, what is this? And he explains, hey, this is because Jesus rose from the dead. You need to turn from your sin. You need to trust in him. You need to be baptized. And a bunch of people do that. It says 3,000 people did that. And in chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2, you see just this unbelievably sweet community that they're in. They're devoted to the apostles' teaching and a fellowship and the breaking bread of prayer. And in chapter 2, verse 47, there's this amazing declaration that they were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved, right? You just sort of imagine Peter, you know, being sort of carried out of the temple on everyone's shoulders as everyone's just celebrating that Jesus has risen and Jesus has forgiven sin. And then you get to chapter 3, and in chapter 3, there's a man who's over 40 years old who was born uh, without the ability to stand or walk. The Scripture describes him as a lame man. He lacked the strength in his tendons and in his ankles and in his feet. And he's outside the temple because you can't go into the presence of God when you have that kind of deformity according to Jewish law. And so he sits out there, and he begs for money. He begs for alms, and he asks Peter and John Two of Jesus' followers, hey, do you have any money? And they say, silver and gold, we have none, but in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. And he does. And he stands up and he leaps and he jumps and he praises God and he's walking all around. And it's this unbelievable miracle. And the crowds rush together. Peter, what happened? And Peter preaches again. And Peter tells them, listen, Jesus came to give you resurrection and refreshment and restoration. That's what this man is a picture of. He's a picture of a resurrected life. He was as good as dead and now he's alive again. He's a picture of refreshment in the presence of the Lord because now he can go into the temple. He's a picture of restoration. This kind of restoration that you see this man being healed, this is what Jesus intends to do with all of his creation. But he expects repentance. He expects you to turn. He expects you to acknowledge that you rejected Jesus and that God raised him and put your faith in him. And and we'll see here that thousands more people have done that. And so if this was all you'd read, up to this point you'd be going, oh my gosh, Christianity is just going to spread like wildfire everywhere. Everybody loves this. And then you get to chapter 4, and you realize, no. And it's the first of many passages in the rest of the book of Acts they are going to show us, no, Christianity will spread. And Christianity will uh, continue to flourish because God's in it. But it will always have opposition. Yeah, there will be moments when you praise God and have favor of all the people, but you will also have moments when significant opposition comes against you. So that's what we're going to see here. Here's what I want to do for our time together. I want to just kind of work through this passage, verses 1 to 22, just kind of read it a verse or two at a time, talk about some of the things that are happening here, make sure we understand it. And then at the end, I want to come back and I, and I want us to reflect on two of the key themes that come through this passage, which is boldness and unbelief. This passage is going to show us a couple incredible things about what it is to really be bold and it's going to show us a few remarkable things about unbelief and, and why unbelief is so common. So as we go through the passage, maybe just keep your eye out for those two themes, and uh, that's what we'll do. All right? So verse 1 of chapter 4, and as they were speaking to the people, this is James and John uh, in the temple, right? This is this, today's part two of, of last week's story, as they were speaking to... To the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So that's exactly what we read in chapter three, Peter saying, Hey, you killed Jesus, God raised him, and a bunch of people are responding to that. Well, the, the leadership of the, the temple system, they hear about it and they are pretty upset. It says, verse 2, they're greatly annoyed. Why? Because they were teaching the people. So like, hey, who are these Yahoos teaching? No one authorized them to do anything. We'll see later. These are just common, ordinary people. They, they don't have any right. They don't have any training. They don't have any experience that should allow them to be teaching the people, teaching thousands of people. Who, who do they think they are? That, that's annoying to these leaders. And it says they were annoyed because they were, the, the, Peter and John were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, that was especially annoying to the Sadducees. And and the Sadducees were the group of religious leaders. There were a number of key groups. Uh, If you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there were a few different groups that all opposed Jesus, but for different reasons. The Pharisees are the ones you kind of read about the most. They were kind of the religious conservatives. And they had the kind of influence with the people, but not the actual, like, power in a lot of places. The Sadducees, on the other hand, they had a lot of of actual political power because what the Sadducees had had said is they said, you know what, everyone's hoping for a Messiah. All the Pharisees, they're hoping that God will send an anointed savior type figure. You know what, we think the Messianic age already started. It started a few years ago with Maccabees and back when Hanukkah started and and you know what, and and by believing that, it made it where the Sadducees were no longer a threat to Rome, right? The Pharisees were always a threat to Rome because they were saying, hey, a true king is coming. The Sadducees says, no, 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 there's no true king. And so the Sadducees were able to have all this political power. And additionally, the Sadducees didn't believe that eventually there would be a resurrection of the dead. And so they hear these things, and they are greatly annoyed. Verse 3. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about five Thousands, thousands of people. Overnight, right? It went from 120 to a mega church. Overnight. Like a mega mega, like a giga church, right? Fast. <laughs> Verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. In other words, All the big head honchos are together. Everybody who has significant influence in this Jewish council, it was called the Sanhedrin, every part of the Sanhedrin has come together. Now, we don't know how often they've gathered uh, recently, but we know for sure that about seven weeks ago, they were together, all these same people, for the Passover feast, and it was at that feast that they condemned Jesus to die. So all the same people who were there when Jesus was sentenced to die, they're back and they're here. Verse 7. And when they had set Peter and John in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Now, you have to understand how this setting would have felt the scholars who study the Sanhedrin, they say that when this group got together, they would form kind of a semicircle and they would set somebody in the middle. So you kind of imagine Peter and John and they're sort of surrounded on all sides by these religious leaders who are the same people that put Jesus to death. What would you be feeling if you were them? Ah wow, I know how this ended for Jesus. Maybe this is how it's going to end for us. They had to be thinking that, right? And they ask, by what name did you do this? Now, that's an interesting question. Because the last time, seven weeks ago, that this group was all gathered together around Jesus, there was somebody who wasn't there. Peter. Peter. I've hinted at this the last few weeks. If you've been here, if you haven't, that's okay. But the story of Peter is fascinating related to that moment. Because while Jesus is surrounded by this council, being uh, sentenced to to die, Peter's not there. And that's important because Peter was the one who told Jesus, listen, Jesus, if everyone else bails on you, I never will. I will be with you. I will stand fast. I will be with you all the way to the end. And, And he's not. In fact, at that moment when Jesus is surrounded by this group, Peter is off and he's warming himself by a fire. And there's a little girl who recognizes him and says, Hey, aren't aren't you one of Jesus' followers? And in that moment, do you know what Peter says? He says, I do not know the man. Get this. He can't even bring himself to say Jesus' name. He doesn't say, I don't know Jesus. He says, I don't know the man. He can't even say his name. And now, what's the question that this group asks him? Verse 7 By what power or by what name did you do this? And watch the courage here, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, and that's important because Jesus had told his disciples back in in Luke chapter 12, and remember Luke is kind of the, the prequel to Acts, Luke chapter 12 said this, and when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Jesus told them that. And this is what happens with Peter. Do you see it? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And if Peter had a microphone, that's when he (laughs) drops it. Now get this, do you see the turn? Right, this is a guy who before a 10-year-old girl in a fire can't even say his name. And now he says, you wanna know what name did this? Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and he is the only name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. here's Here's the crux of Peter's argument. He's saying, listen, you can't deny that we have power and authority because you see this man healed. The power that healed this man comes from Jesus, who you know did this all the time. If Jesus is still healing today, then Jesus is alive despite your efforts to try to destroy him. And he offers not just physical healing, but total salvation that can save you if you accept it. That's the crux of his argument. That is bold. That is courageous. What will they do? Verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. They see this boldness and they see it as it says there from uneducated common men. The word common is the Greek word idiotes. Just, you're village idiots. <laughs> and that's not, it's not saying they perceived that they were stupid or they were like morons. That's not what it's saying. It's just saying, hey, these are regular lay people who have not been trained. They don't have the degrees. They don't have the, the qualifications. They haven't been through all the training. Believe me, they've been trained, right? They've spent time with Jesus. And they go, yeah, we recognize. They, they, these are the guys that were always running around with him. But they're astonished, It says. Note this, their ordinariness plus the fear of the situation plus their boldness is what led them to be astonished, right? We think, oh, I'll astonish people if I have all this knowledge and wisdom, no. I'll astonish people if I have all this power and influence, no. No, what astonishes people is when we're absolutely ordinary and the situation is absolutely daunting and in the midst of it, we still have boldness. That's when the world goes... Wow. There's something to that. But notice how hard their hearts are. Verse 14. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. What do what, what we, we say? Yeah, the guy... We've seen him for years sitting out there. Now he's standing up. Verse 15. But when they had commanded them to leave the council... They conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. This is crazy. This is hard-heartedness. This is an unwillingness to see the truth of what's happened. Do you get what they're saying? We see the guy. We can't deny he's been healed. We can't deny a notable sign has been done. It's evident to everyone. But this thing can't keep spreading. As I read this, it reminds me of Pharaoh. If you read in the early parts of the book of exodus the people of egypt are in slavery in egypt and god sends moses to be a deliverer and 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 through moses this series of plagues happen the nile is turned to blood and there's gnats and there's uh, all these different amazing mighty miracle works of god designed to get pharaoh's attention and pharaoh can't deny that it happens but every time he hardens his heart. There's actually a really funny place in, in Exodus 8 where there's the frogs. There's this, this, this plague of frogs. Frogs are just teeming up out of the river everywhere, and they're in the house, and they're in, they're in, not like little cute frogs, like just gross, disgusting frogs, and they're everywhere. And, and Pharaoh says, okay, Moses, pray to God. Or actually, Moses comes and says, hey, listen, Pharaoh, I, I will, I'll pray to God, and this will go away as soon as you want me to pray. When do you want me to pray for you? And one of the funniest verses in the whole Bible, Pharaoh says, tomorrow. <laughs> right, someday I want to do a sermon called One More Night with the Frogs, right? Like, <laughs> like what? This is crazy, right? But what it, it's just this stubbornness. Yeah, I know this is God. Yeah, I know he's grinding me. But I, it's not that I can't see it. It's that I won't. They dig in their heels. It's interesting, too, I think, that, that, uh, you know, Peter and John aren't in there. So how do we know what happened in this conversation, right? Luke records this conversation as though we've heard it. How do we know? Well, it seems evident that at least among this group of 70 leaders in the council, at least some of them have come to faith in Christ at some point later and probably told Luke, hey, here's what we said. So the message is penetrating into some individuals, but as a whole, this group has way too much to lose, and they say, we can't let them keep talking about this Jesus, verse 18. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. In other words, hey, God told us to keep talking about it, and we're going to keep talking about it. And I know you're saying we're not supposed to, and I know you're saying it's kind of against policy to talk about Jesus. We're going to. Because we're going to obey God, not you. Verse 21, And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God. For what had happened, for the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than forty years old. Wow. Right, this opposition happens. And Peter and John are bold, right? They don't gripe and buy gold, they don't wither and fold. They're filled with the Spirit and they're bold. So what can we learn first about boldness from this passage? Here's the definition of boldness. The word is used in verse 13 when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. That word boldness means a state of confidence, of courage, especially in the presence of persons of high rank. Right? This is courage in the midst of fear. Right? Our assumption is often that if you're really bold, if you're really courageous, you'll never experience fear. That's not what this word means. This word means that in the moments when you really should be afraid, but you press through, confidently anyway. That's boldness. Boldness is not never having fear. Boldness is stepping into that fear with faith. And they have this boldness. Here's the first thing we learn, uh, our two lessons on boldness. First one is this. Boldness is required for following Jesus because opposition is inevitable. Opposition is inevitable. Jesus told his disciples this in John 15. He said, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Jesus says, listen, guys, hey, when I speak, some people hear it and they keep it and they love everything I say. Other people try to kill me. Do you think you're better than me? Do you think it will be different for you? Right, and this is what we see, right? Right, in in Acts 2, People are praising God, they have favor with all the people in Acts 4, they still have the favor of the people, but now there's some opposition, and we're just going to see more and more and more of it. Listen, boldness is required if you want to be faithful because opposition is coming. Now, it's not required if you just want to gripe and buy gold, just kind of, you know what, the the world can go to hell, I'm just going to keep my faith all to me. Well, that, that's not what Peter does. Peter says, hey, I want it to be known to you and to all of Israel and anyone else that will listen that this Jesus is the one who saves. Right? That's boldness. He doesn't, he doesn't gripe him by gold, he, nor does he wither and fold and go, well, yeah, I know. I, you know, I really shouldn't do this. You know, I should stop talking about Jesus. You're right. I, you know, I'm sorry. He doesn't do that, but he respectfully And courageously says, listen, I've got to obey God, not you. Whenever your expectation, leaders, comes against God's expectation, God wins. Listen, boldness is required for following Jesus because opposition is inevitable. If we're going to be faithful, if we're going to learn to be bold, we have to expect we're going to face challenges. Here's the second thing, and the most significant thing I think we see about boldness from this passage, is that boldness is anchored in deep convictions about the gospel. Listen, boldness doesn't come mostly through personality. It doesn't come mostly through, oh, there's a lot of knowledge, right? Because we've seen Peter's personality, and sometimes even with as bold of a personality as Peter had, he withers and folds in front of the 10-year-old girl, And the the, the boldness isn't coming from great knowledge because he's an uneducated common man. So what is this boldness coming from? Well, he's filled with the Spirit and he is anchored in deep convictions about the gospel. What are those convictions? Well, first, he is anchored in the conviction that Jesus rose from the dead. Look at verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. The foundation, anchor, center of the Christian faith is the resurrection of Jesus. This is the issue. And I know some of you... Do not consider yourselves followers of Jesus. I know some of you have questions. Some of you have objections. Some of you are more skeptical. Some of you are more open. But you have not yet trusted Christ. And there's, there's things you're trying to wrestle through. And that is important. Here's what you need to know. This is the question. It's not the age of the earth. It's not, well, what about the Bible and science? Those are important questions. That's not the question. It, it, it's not, well, what about different sexualities and preferences, and what does God say about that? That's an important question. That is not the question. It's not about, well, what about the history of the church? I mean, that hasn't always been good in the record of the church. That's an important question. It's not the question. The question is, did Jesus rise from the dead? That's the question. Peter says, I saw him rise from the dead. I saw him. Listen, that's the only thing that could explain how he goes from withering and folding to bold. That's the only thing. He goes, I've seen the resurrected Jesus. And that conviction anchored him. It gave him boldness. It gave him courage. There's another conviction that anchored him. Not just the resurrection of Jesus, but secondly, that salvation is only possible through Jesus. Salvation Rescue, forgiveness, relationship with God, the promise of everything being made new, that is only possible, Peter says, through Jesus. Look at verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Listen, Peter says Jesus is not just a good religious leader. He's not just a miracle worker. He is the only way to experience salvation from God, rescue from God, relationship with God. There's no other name. Now, I realize that as you hear that, some of you hear that and you go, golly, that is so narrow. That, like Really, everybody's wrong except Christians? Here's here's what I just want to ask you. Don't get upset at me. And don't get upset at Peter. Because Peter didn't make this up. Get upset at Jesus. Because Jesus in John chapter 14 verse 6 said, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but through me. So, So it was Jesus who said that. Peter's just repeating what he heard Jesus say. There is salvation in no other name. So if you have a problem, take it up with Jesus. Now, here's the thing. Jesus rose from the dead. So if a man can predict his death and resurrection and then do it, we should believe what he says. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That anchors Peter. This gives urgency to Peter. It gives boldness to Peter. He goes, listen, I have to tell people this, even if it costs me, even if it hurts me, even if it kills me, people need to know because I want them to know God. And here are the people, the Sanhedrin, the council, the leadership of the temple, who of all people should know God, and they don't know God. I need to tell them. And so I will be bold, even if it costs me. Here's the third deep conviction that Peter had is that we ultimately answer to God. Verse 19. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. Peter's saying, listen, my boldness comes from believing with certainty because I saw him. This isn't something I heard. This is something I saw that Jesus rose from the dead and that he is the only one that brings salvation and you know what ultimately i don't answer to people i don't answer to human approval i don't answer to councils i don't answer to those groups i answer to god and to the degree as a follower of christ that you have convictions on those three things and to the degree that you lean into the power of the holy spirit you'll have boldness you don't have to gripe and buy gold and you don't have to wither and fold. You can learn to be bold. if You have deep convictions on those things. So powerful encouragement, powerful example about boldness from this passage. But there's also some interesting lessons, I think, on unbelief. And the boldness is the part that stands out when you look at Peter and John. When you look at the council, though, it stands out how how much they don't believe. So what two things do we learn about unbelief? Well, first, this passage shows us that unbelief is normal in a fallen world. Unbelief's normal. This passage and every other passage in Acts, what's going to happen is God is going to work in a powerful way and people are going to go, what happened? Because their instinct is not to go, oh, this must have been God. They're, they're going to have to have it explained because since Adam and Eve sinned, Right, before Adam and Eve sinned, unbelief was not normal. Unbelief was weird. Right? The normal thing was to trust God who had made us in his image. But Adam and Eve don't do that, and they disbelieve God. And so now it's normal to not believe. It's normal to not trust God. It's normal to say, I need you to explain this to me. It's normal to say, I don't know what I think about it. And, and, and I'll tell you, I. I think Christianity is hard to believe. I'm in a list of a number of questions that I legitimately wrestle with, and I'm not going to answer them. I'm just going to raise them. So that'll be frustrating to some of you, but <laughs> but it's hard to believe. And if you have a person who's been a Christian for a while, and and you kind of think, oh, unbelievers are stupid. Like, come on, it's so obvious. Like. Just just hold on and remember how hard it is to believe this message, right? Here's a question that that's, I've wrestled with my whole life since I've been learning about God, is where did God come from? And everything else has a very clear beginning, and well, where did God come from? It's a, it's a good question. Why did God allow sin and evil in the world at all? I know that Adam and Eve chose to sin, they chose to disobey and that we are sinners by nature and by choice, we sin because we want to and all the damage that that inflicts is is stuff we want but why did God even make that possible? I mean God could have created a world, right, where where sin wasn't even an option where evil and pain and suffering and death aren't even an option But, but he didn't create that world, he created this one that's a that's a great, hard question. How can God be one God and three persons? You ever try to explain the Trinity to a preschooler? I have. I've tried twice with my two older kids, and I will with two younger kids. And I'm sure the two younger kids will give me just as puzzled looks as the two older kids did, when they said, well, Dad, you've taught me math, and I know that one is not three. How's this work? It's a good question. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? I mean, really? I've never seen anyone rise from the dead. I've never seen these kinds of miracles that seem to just be so commonplace in the Gospels. Really? And, And what about this question? How can so many people who don't love Jesus, how can they all be wrong? How can they all be sentenced to hell? Those are good questions. Those are important questions. And if you're a person that that sort of scoffs at the unbelief in the world and in the friends and in the family and in the culture around you, let me just remind you how those things are hard to believe. Listen, people without doubts are people who are not thinking very deeply. But, and this is what's so key from this passage, Yes, unbelief is normal. Yes, it is difficult. There are things in the Christian faith that are hard to explain and harder to understand. But here's what you've got to see from this passage. Here's the second lesson. Unbelief is more biased than it wants to admit. Unbelief is more biased than it wants to admit. Right? People who go, well, see, you just articulated all the reasons why I don't believe. But here's the thing. We imagine ourselves to be people who, I'm, I'm neutral. Right? I'm neutral. I'm rational. Just uh, give me all the information and I will make a, a reasoned, rational decision about what I think about it because I'm neutral and I'm just weighing the evidence. You're not neutral. You are biased and you have lots of incentives not to believe. Right? That's what's going on here. These these leaders, they can't deny what's happened. Look at verse 14. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Verse 16. What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. So why do they not fall on their faces and say, God, forgive us, we killed your son, Jesus. Why? Because they had too much to lose. Because that would mean the loss of their power. That would mean the loss of their status. That would mean the loss of their influence. That would probably mean the loss of their income. That would mean the loss of prestige in their community. They had everything to lose. And listen, so do you. Because if you put your faith in Jesus, You're saying, I'm going to give up freedom. I'm not going to be king of my life anymore. He is. You're giving up power because you're going to yield to what he wants you to do. You're going to give up a measure of reputation because there will be people who you know and love and respect who will not respect you the same way anymore. Depending on your career path, depending on what you intend to do with your life, you may face significant career obstacles. You have a lot to lose because if you come to Christ, you give up everything. So listen, you may have legitimate questions and we want to help answer those. You may have things that you need help sorting through. We want to help you sort through it. But would you be honest? See, I'm trying to be honest and say, listen, I, there are things about the Christian faith that are hard to believe. Would you be honest? Would you be honest and say, I don't want to believe them. I I want to find evidence that proves it not to be true, because I have too much to lose. Here's what Tim Keller says about this, and he's familiar with this, lots of skeptical people in New York City. Here's what he writes about this passage. He says, it is extremely interesting to see that the liberal Sadducees and the conservative teachers of the law, the Pharisees, are completely united in their opposition to the gospel. They had almost nothing in common intellectually. Their own positions were diametrically opposed, and they were hostile to each other. You get what he's saying? The Pharisees and Sadducees, they didn't agree on anything except they didn't like Jesus. Yet now they are united in their hatred of Christianity. This tells us that unbelief is not at bottom an intelligence thing. It is a visceral thing. It's a feelings thing people will grab hold on any intellectual argument possible to defend themselves from the claims of Christ, for that is the real problem. Christ's exclusive claims intimidate everyone. Listen, if you're a person who is struggling to believe, would you just be honest about your incentives, about why you don't? And would you maybe begin to open yourself up? Just like I'm opening myself up to, hey, how do I wrestle through these doubts? Would you open yourself up to maybe God really did raise Jesus from the dead? And maybe there really is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. And maybe you will someday have to answer to God. And for those of us who are followers of Christ, could we be a little more sympathetic, a little more understanding? And could we realize that we are not going to argue and reason and rationalize people into the kingdom and instead would we become people of prayer? Saying, God, only you can allow people to see Jesus as a treasure instead of a threat. And the reason I know that is because only you allowed me to see it. And would we be people of prayer and people of courage? Would we not gripe and by gold? Would we not wither and fold, but would we, looking at the Scriptures, learn to be bold? Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we love you because you first loved us. God, we uh, who believe here today, we don't believe because we're smarter. Uh, We don't believe because we uh, have more answers about everything. Uh, We believe because in your mercy, you have broken our resistance by your Spirit and enabled us to treasure you in a way that we never did before. And So we pray, God, that you would fill us with boldness and confidence because of the resurrected Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.